So uh, anyway, welcome. So we're coming towards the very end of the um, Brahma Jala Sutta. This is the eighth part of this particular sutta. And so we're going to have a look at the very last of these um, 62 views that the Buddha is talking about. Uh, so just to remind you again, the Brahma Jala is, uh, Brahma is obviously the kind of the high deity of the uh, ancient Brahmanical religion. Uh, and the Jala means a net. So it's like the idea here is like the supreme, the, the highest god is also like the supreme. So it's like the supreme net in which you catch all of these kind of views. Uh, so this is the net of views. And uh, I, just to remind you very briefly, the main idea behind this is that uh, when there is a sense of self, uh, yeah, which obviously is the problem that we are looking to undo in the Buddhist teachings, uh, when, as long as there is a sense of self, uh, there is a lot of consequences from that. Uh, and the con one of the main consequences is that you have all these views about, especially about uh, uh, yourself and about who you are, and those views then also uh, come go beyond yourself. They actually become views that uh, encompass really all of reality, all of experience, all of existence. Uh, and so you get these views about the world and yourself. Uh, and there are 62 views here, but they are they really tend to come down to two kinds of views. Uh, and one is that actually there's a few more as well, but the two main views is what you, we call in Buddhism eternalism. Uh, and annihilationism, the thing, idea that things go on forever or they stop. And there are variations on that theme, uh, the views in this particular sutta. And uh, what is so interesting about this is uh, firstly that these kind of views that uh, you know, are found in the suttas, these are pretty much the same views that people have today. Yeah? This is what makes the sutta so interesting. There's nothing has really changed in two and a half thousand years. Eh? <laughs> Still the same, right? Human beings are the same. Our psychology is the same. Our delusions are the same. Our defilements are the same. And because of that, the views that we have about the world are also basically the same. You think about modern day philosophy and religion. Basically, it is all about either eternalism or it is about coming, everything coming to an end when we die. Yeah? So nothing has really changed. And so this is why these things are very relevant to the present day. And they're also very relevant because, as I mentioned before, in Buddhism, people also have these views. You might think that in Buddhism we wouldn't have these views because we have the Buddha, our teacher, to tell us what is right view, what is wrong view. But despite that, despite the fact that we have the Buddha there, people still get it completely wrong sometimes. Why is that? Well, the reason is that the... Um, uh, the drivers, uh, yeah, the craving, the underlying tendencies are so powerful and so strong yeah, that uh, it distorts the teaching of the Buddha to conform with your defilements. Uh. It's a very important point. I think we very often underestimate the power of defilements. Uh. The power of defilements are there, so they will make you see what you want to see in things. Uh. And even when you have a teacher like the Buddha, who uh, actually, you know, who then sees, even if you have someone who sees through that delusion like the Buddha, still you misinterpret it because the power of defilements are so strong, it distorts those teachings. So for this reason, actually it's very useful, I think, to have some idea of these particular views. So now we have come to the last five of these views, and these are called extinguishment in the present life. And... So this is, uh, yeah, 
So, and this is the idea that you attain nibbana in the present life, and these are then really eternalist views because you pr- you attain nibbana in this life, and this kind of nibbana then carries on after you after you die. That's kind of the idea. So, extinguishment in the present life, dittadamma nibbana, is the uh, the pali for that. Uh, so let's have a look at this. I'm gonna. I intend to finish the sutta today. So if it takes one hour, two hours, four hours, uh, whatever, we're <laughs> gonna have to stay till it's done. Because uh, I'm. This is the eighth session. I think that's enough for this one sutta. So uh, so let's see what happens. Uh. So there are some ascetics and brahmins who speak of extinguishment in the present life. They assert the ultimate. Uh, extinguishment of an existing being in the present life on five grounds. And what are the five grounds on which they rely? So again, ascetics and Brahmins, yeah, these are the uh, religious seekers, the spiritual seekers, uh, the philosophers uh, at the time of the Buddha. These were the people who did have uh, ideas about, you know, views about uh, these kind of issues. uh. Uh, extinguishment here is nibbana. So, in other words, you attain the highest in this life. You don't have to wait till after you die, as you do in certain religions and teachings. Uh, you actually get it right here in this particular life, and then it carries on afterwards. Uh. And uh, you assert the ultimate. This is parama, is the Pali word, uh, and parama means like the highest extinguishment. Uh, yeah. So the idea here is that the uh, there is a kind of top level. And you reach that top level, you can't go beyond. Yeah, this is kind of the idea of parama here. And you will see that some of these ultimate extinguishments, they're not really all that impressive. They sound pretty ordinary here. Yeah. But anyway, we'll go through them. And then this important word of an existing being, yeah, this is a very important word here, because the idea of an existing being is that, again, this idea of an inherent essence in a human being, yeah, this idea of self, really, is another way of talking about the idea of a self, of an inherent essence, something that is always there, something which is the real you. You peel off the layers of the onion, the things, okay, I'm not the body, I see that, I'm not these, I'm not, I'm not the dukkha feelings, obviously not, I must be, I'm these kind of, whatever it is. So you peel off a few layers and the, the core comes out, that's the existing being, that's the self. So you can see here the Buddha uses slightly different words to get to the same idea, the idea of an inherent essence in a being. So the ultimate, the highest extinguishment of an existing being in the present life on five grounds. So just maybe before I start, just to give, what do we mean by extinguishment here? Because this is kind of important. You have extinguishment of an existing being. And I think maybe this translation is not ideal in this particular case. Because when you say extinguishment of a being, it sounds like the being is becoming extinguished. The whole person disappears. That is not actually what is going on here. Because that would mean, that's the, that's the Buddhist way of thinking about things, yeah? The extinguishment of a being, something coming to an end. That's the Buddhist way. But this is not the Buddhist way. These are eternalist views. These are wrong views. So I would say the better translation here would be extinguishment for an existing being. Yeah? Because that being continues to exist, but it exists in a more refined state. So extinguishment here refers to the ending of dukkha. Yeah, so when that Dukkha ends for that being, that is called extinguishment. But the being itself, that person or whatever it is, carries on. That's kind of the whole idea. 
So this is a small point of a, of translation, but um, and I really no, I shouldn't say that. I, sometimes it's best to hold back when you're about to say something here. So don't say that. Okay. <coughs> so you so it's extinguishment for. I think that would be a pref, my preferred translation here. I. Uh, I, uh, I'm sure if, if uh, Bhante Sujato was here, this is his translation, he was sitting next to me, he would, uh, now he would grab the microphone and make his case for why obvious correct, but anyway, I'm, <laughs> he's not here, so I can say whatever I want, so hey, hey I'm going to do that. Yeah. So, uh, extinguishment for an existing being, because that existing being is then extinct, dukkha is really what is being extinguished here. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So you reach the highest happiness. And this idea of Nibbana is this idea of reaching a state of happiness in the suttas. In Buddhism, it becomes to have a very specific idea. It means the you know, extinguishment of craving and the complete is slightly different. But the general idea of achieving happiness is what it is about. Okay, so this is now it's exciting. How can you, what do these people say about the highest happiness in the present life? And this is what they say here. There are some ascetics and Brahmins uh, who have this doctrine and view. When this self amuses itself, uh, supplied and provided with the five kinds of sensual stimulation, uh, that is how this self attains ultimate extinguishment in the present life. Yeah, so if you, when you are really kind of enjoying yourself to the maximum and you're enjoying all the sensual pleasures you can think of, uh, putting them all together, maximizing the sensual pleasure of the world, hedonism, also known as hedonism, uh, that is when you attain nibbana. <laughs> it doesn't sound very Buddhist, does it? Uh, it sounds kind of anti-Buddhist. Uh, and uh, it's kind of a very shallow view of nibbana, right? Uh, just the idea of enjoying yourself and... Uh, having you know, relationships and enjoying yourself in the world of entertainment and eating and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it's kind of obvious that these things are very imper impermanent and unreliable. A little bit of reflection kind of makes that obvious. But when there is no Buddha around to guide you, of course, quite easily, you can fall into that particular trap. So, and... Uh, this is probably also a very common view in the present world. Yeah? Most people actually probably fall into this kind of view without really knowing that they have that view. Majority of people in the world don't really practice a spiritual life. They have no idea of happiness and inner happiness or joy of the mind that is separate or apart from the five senses. So all the people in the world who kind of, you know, who, what is, it, what is that all saying? You, uh, work hard, play hard kind of people. Yeah. Work hard, play hard, that's kind of the hedonism. Yeah? You work really hard, make lots of money, and then you kind of maximize your, your happiness by using that money in certain ways. Uh, that's kind of the hedonistic worldview. So I think it's kind of, that view underlies a lot of how many people live their life in the world. So actually, from my point of view, it is very interesting here. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm not sure if there's all that much more to be said about this. And just please, at any point while I go through this, you're very welcome, as always, to interrupt, ask questions, or make comments, or whatever you would like to contribute to today's uh, uh, Sutta class. So, this is how some assert the extinguishment of an existing being in this present life. So here, obviously, extinguishment means reaching the highest happiness by being supplied with the five chords or sensual pleasures. 
make as much money as you possibly can and then just enjoy that uh, wealth afterwards. But someone else says to them, that self of which you speak does exist. I don't deny it. But that is not how this self attains ultimate extinguishment in the present life. So, um, the idea here is that um, uh, so there is something deeper going on. This person says, yeah, that is not the end of things. The idea of uh, uh, a self which enjoys the sensual pleasure is something deeper in a human being. Yeah. So he says, yes, I agree with you that there is this aspect of the five senses, uh, but there's something more, something deeper. Yeah. So um, in a sense, when it says that self of which you speak does exist, uh, it doesn't, you know, that self is kind of a superficial self. It's not the real self. The real self is this self, the interior one, the one which kind of goes beyond the five senses. Uh, that's kind of the, the point here, because otherwise there's two different selves, which seems a bit strange. So it's really the, this, this self which is uh, beyond that, that actually this is about. Uh, so that is not how this self, yeah, the, the, the kind of further self, attains extinguishment in the present life. Why is that? Uh, because sensual pleasures are impermanent, suffering, and perishable. Yeah? A little bit of introspection will tell you that very quickly, that these things are inherently unreliable. Their decay and perishing give rise to sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress. Quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unskillful qualities, this self enters and remains in the first absorption, which has rapture and bliss born of seclusion, while placing the mind and keeping it connected. That is how this self attains ultimate extinguishment in the present life. So this is the first jhana experience. Yeah, the first absorption here is the uh, translation for the first jhana. And uh, of course, when you go into the first jhana, you go completely beyond the sensory realm, com completely apart from that, uh, and you enter a different reality. Uh, and this is why these states are so strange, because you move out of the world that we are so used to. Uh, and it's very, you know, kind of, unimaginable for us what this world really is like until you get there. Huh? So this becomes then the alternative self. Yeah, This is kind of far superior, obviously, to the previous one. Huh? So once you have some of these experiences, uh, you will obviously no longer take the previous self as a real self. Uh, and uh, you will kind of automatically take this instead. Uh. And uh, this is very, very common. We talked about this before. Yeah, the idea of taking the samadhi experiences as self, uh, because they as self because they have all the hallmarks uh, of what you would call a self. Yeah, this is, um, and the hallmarks, of course, are the typical hallmarks of uh, what we what might call some. It, it seems first of all, it seems stable. Uh, yeah, so you can imagine that this might be permanent when you die. Uh, there's no change, it is absolute bliss. Uh, the idea of the movement of the mind or the doing of the mind or the self as doer has all disappeared. These are all the aspects of the first jhana. So they have all those aspects that in other religions are called God. Yeah, you go to the Hindu religion to talk about the Satchit Ananda, kind of one of the words they used for the Godhead or the Brahma and these kind of things. And Satchit Ananda means literally existing mind bliss. Yeah, and first jhana 
where all the jhanas, many of them, are a bit like that. They are blissful. It's the mind. It's existing, but there's nothing really apart from that. So it's very closely related to these things. It's very natural to take these things as, I think it's almost unavoidable that you take these things as a self. That is how powerful they are. And it really takes someone like the Buddha to be able to break through that and see that there's something beyond. So first jhana taken as the self which lasts forever after. That is how this self attains ultimate extinguishment in the present life. And then you carry on forever after. So this is the first jhana here in Bhante Suddhato's translation. I'm not going to analyze the first jhana now because uh, it is, uh, we're going to do soon do the Samma Samadhi workshop here and we're going to probably analyze this upside down and backwards forwards and in all possible conceivable ways. Uh, so we'll uh, wait until then. But uh, is there any, anyone want to say anything about this uh, now? Uh, well, we are here. Uh, is any Eddie, yeah? Eddie, always good for a question. That's good. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Mm. Ajahn Brahmali, I feel I want to say something you know, when I see this thing because you know, it applies to me. You know, mm. you know, when, I, when I first came to Buddhism, okay, before I came to Buddhism, okay, um, sensual pleasures, I was ignorant of all these things. You know, I had late nights, I went out to meet all the negative things. You know, and after a while, I became sick, you know. Mm. So you go to see a doctor's blood test, x-rays, nothing wrong, there's nothing, 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 mm. thing, you know, okay. Till I came into Buddhism, you know. So when I saw this, I think, I changed my lifestyle. You know, and I became well. Okay. Good. Yeah, so yeah. this is a very powerful thing. Mm. I'm just sharing this experience. When I see this thing, oh, wow. I think, you know. So yeah. I, I, I can say something here. Yeah. Mm. Okay, great. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's probably yeah excellent all right everyone else is happy yeah good okay so uh, let's carry on so now the the rest of these five uh, five ways of attending the highest extinguishment in the present life are pretty straightforward so we'll just go go through them and then we uh, look at the conclude conclusion of the whole sutta that is how some assert the extinguishment of an existing being in the present life but someone else says to them, that self of which you speak does exist, I don't deny it. But that is not how, not how this self attains ultimate extinguishment in the present life. Why is that? <coughs> because the placing of the mind and keeping it connected there are coarse. But when the placing of the mind and keeping it connected are stilled, this self enters and remains in the second absorption, which has rapture and bliss born of immersion with uh, internal clarity and confidence uh, and unified mind without placing the mind and keeping it connected. So um, here, this is kind of a typical way of doing, of uh, analyzing the jhanas. You analyze the coarser part of the jhana and you see that they are dukkha compared to uh, what might be there otherwise. So here you look at the first jhana, you see that there is some kind of slight movement left yeah, in the first jhana, the placing of the mind and keeping it connected, that's vitaka vichara in the Pali. And uh, 
So uh, that is kind of coarse. So when you abandon that, uh, you get to something even more refined. That is the second jhana. Yeah? So you're kind of seeing dukkha in more and more refined ways. Uh, and uh, so you let go of something, you go deeper. This is why this is called the highest um, nibbana in the present life, uh, because you abandon more dukkha, coming to more and more stillness, more and more happiness and bliss as a consequence. Uh, that is the coarser part being abandoned. So this is the uh, second absorption, born of immersion, bliss born of immersion, or born of stillness perhaps. Uh, uh, the idea here is that the mind at this point is completely solid. There's no movement anymore. That's kind of the idea of samadhi. All right, that is how this self attains ultimate extinguishment in the present life. That is how some assert the extinguishment of an existing being in the present life. But someone else says to them, that self of which you speak does exist. I don't deny it. But that is not how this self attains ultimate extinguishment in the present life. Why is that? Because the rapture and emotional excitement there are coarse. But with the fading away of rapture, this self enters and remains in the third absorption, where it meditates with equanimity, mindful and aware, personally experiencing the bliss of which the noble ones declare. Equanimous and mindful, one meditates in bliss. So, third jhana, even more profound than the uh, second jhana. So you abandon some of the coarser aspect of uh, happiness and bliss, uh, and you enter the more refined aspects of bliss. Uh, and because they are more refined, it is a higher happiness, and for that reason, this is what they call nibbana, because of the degree of happiness that is there. Uh, and then you think that you will enter and remain, and you will stay in the third jhana forever after, after you die. And then you die, and you get a shock when what happens. Uh, and this is kind of the downside or wrong view. You get shocked when reality kicks in again. That is how this self attains the ultimate extinguishment in the present life. This is how some assert the extinguishment of an existing being in the present life. So, um, does it make sense to everyone so far? Yeah? If it doesn't make sense, please say so. You're welcome to complain as well, you know, don't have to just uh, ask wise questions, you can ask stupid questions, medium questions, uh, slightly wise questions, sometimes the most stupid questions are the best ones, uh, because that's what everyone wants to ask, but no one dares to ask, yeah. so everyone is kind of waiting for you to <laughs> open the floor and ask the silly questions. Uh, yes, John, thank you. Um, is it, the, way, the way this suitors presented uh, these um, processes, um, does this mean that, that people were practicing jhanas before the Buddha arrived? Uh, yes. So the, you know, what the Buddha is doing here, he's basically looking at all the existing views in ancient India that were available at the time. And then he was saying, well, these are, these are wrong ways of looking. So this would have been ways it was either practiced at the time of the Buddha or prior or, or whenever really. Could also be that the Buddha was kind of laying down a theoretical framework, knowing that certain views are possible without them actually being practiced. 
So it's hard to know for 100% sure that these things were actually practiced at that time. Uh, but the Buddha would have known that sometimes these things happen, yeah? because sometimes this is just the nature of the world, that sometimes people do practice these things, they misunderstand. Uh, another possibility, which I think is uh, quite likely, is precisely what I was saying initially, is that actually even in Buddhist circles we practice these things uh, because we haven't understood the teachings properly, we make that mistake in Buddhist circles. So the Buddha might say, don't make this mistake. Yeah? This is not a possibility. So I think all of these things together, really, is probably what the Buddha is getting at. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let us go on. Uh, but someone else says to them, that cell for which you speak does exist I don't deny it. But that's not how this self attains ultimate extinguishment in the present life. Why is that? Because the bliss and enjoyment there are coarse. But giving up pleasure and pain and the ending of the former happiness and sadness, this self enters and remains in the fourth absorption. Without pleasure and pain, with pure equanimity and mindfulness. This is what is so mind-blowing about the, uh, the Dhamma in many ways. I always like to point this out because uh, in the third jhana you reach the peak of bliss in samsaric uh, uh, existence. Nothing is really higher than this. Uh, and then you say, yeah, bliss is coarse, equanimity is better. Uh, and then you give up the bliss and you go to equanimity instead. Uh, and of course this whole idea that equanimity and mindfulness is superior to bl sheer bliss it's hard to grasp, right? <laughs> Very hard to understand how that can possibly be the case. And this is something about the profundity of these teachings. You give up the bliss, you go to equanimity, it's better. And you can start to see how extinguishment, final ending of things, really starts to make sense if that is actually true. Anyway, so... That is how this self attains the ultimate extinguishment in the present life, by reaching the purity of equanimity and mindfulness. That is how some assert the extinguishment of an existing being in the present life. These are the five grounds on which those ascetics and Brahmins assert the ultimate extinguishment of an existing being in the present life. Life. Any ascetic of Brahmins who assert the ultimate extinguishment of an existing being in the present life do so on one or other of these five grounds. Outside of this, there is none. So, uh, <coughs> kind of interesting that um, there is no higher extinguishment. What about the immaterial attainments, uh, you might ask? Yeah, what about the infinite space or the uh, the uh, sphere of infinite consciousness or the uh, attainment of nothingness and these kind of things. What, what happened to them? How come they're not mentioned here? Uh, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> that is the truth. But we can kind of make some guesses. And uh, it's quite possible that they are so rare and attained so rarely that actually there isn't any need for really talking about them. Uh, yeah, the jhanas are part of the path, or because the four jhanas are part of the path, we need to really be on the lookout for the four jhanas. If we misunderstand them, we're going to block the access to awakening. And that, of course, is a big problem. But the material temas may, in fact, be so rare that they don't really count. The main thing is talking about the four jhanas. 
Did anyone really attain these immaterial attainments prior to the Buddha? That is an interesting question. We know from the famous passages in the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, Majjhimanikai 26, the Noble Surge. We know, of course, when the Buddha was practicing under his previous teachers, yeah, he attained something that was called the attainment of nothingness and the attainment of neither perception nor non-perception. It is there, but we don't really know what they referred to, whether they really meant the material attainments or not. Uh, but these are things that maybe we can talk about more when we look at uh, Sama Samadhi soon during the, uh, the, the course of the early Buddhist text later on. Huh? But it's a little bit strange that they're missing, especially the Buddha says, outside of this there is no other possibility. Yeah? Because... Uh, yeah. Anyway. I don't think it matters much for practical purposes, but just to kind of uh, exhaust everything. And then we have the standard refrain at the end. The realized one understands this. Uh, and those who genuinely praise the realized one would rightly speak of these things. Uh, yeah, so the, uh, just to remind you again, the idea here is that uh, uh, people often praise the Buddha for all the superficial things. Uh, yeah, you, you see that in the suttas that uh, people say, oh, look at this, look at this Buddha, he's perfect in conduct, uh, he walks really nicely and he wears his robes in the right way and he, does not, he looks really, he looks, the, he looks like you know, the real deal. Uh, and the Buddha says, well, all this thing about sila is kind of not really the point. Uh, uh, the point of the Buddha is the insight he has, and that insight uh, is uh, is a part of that is the understanding of what is right view, what is wrong view in the world. That's a very important part of that insight, uh, because that really comes from the insight into non-self. That is what makes the Buddha special. Uh, the difference between Buddhism and any other spiritual teaching, any other religion, any other philosophy is precisely the insight into non-self. The Buddha says that in the. Uh, Chula Sihanada Sutta, the shorter discourse on the lion's roar, Majjhima number 11, you find that there. And this is the one thing that really distinguishes Buddhism. So this is what we should look at, the Buddha's ability to understand all the various philosophies in the world in the sense of where they lead, where they go, in, a, uh, in terms of happiness and suffering and leading to Nibbana and these kind of things. That is what matters. Okay, <clears throat> these are the 44 grounds on which those ascetics and Brahmins who theorize about the future assert various hypotheses concerning the future. Any ascetic or Brahmin who theorizes about the future do so on one or other of these 44 grounds. So this was the last five of these 44 grounds. All right. Outside of this there is none. The realized one understands this, and those who genuinely praise the realized one would rightly speak of these things. These are the 62 grounds on which those ascetics and Brahmins who theorize about the past and the future assert various hypotheses concerning the past and the future. And ascetic Brahmins who theorize about the past or the future do so on one or other of these 62 grounds. Outside of this, there is none. The realized one understands this. If you hold on to and attach to these grounds for views, 
it leads to such and such a destiny in the next life. He understands this and what goes beyond this. And since he does not misapprehend that understanding, he has realized extinguishment within himself. Having truly understood the origin, ending, gratification, drawback and escape from feelings, the realized one is freed through non-grasping. So this is, um, again, this uh, powerful message by which he summarizes all of these views and uh, what, why they are problematic. Yeah? And so if you hold on to or grasp, he, he translates here as uh, grounds for views, the, the Pali word is dittitana, and uh, tana is like a basis or foundation. It literally means to stand. Uh, the, in fact, the Pali word tana, shtana in Sanskrit, is directly related to the English word stand. Yeah? Or the, actually, all European languages probably have that word. Uh, and so it means like standpoints or basis for views, but really it just means views. So you could translate this as if you hold on to, attach to these views, that would be equally correct. And it wouldn't really, because a standpoint for a view here is just the view itself. It doesn't really add much. It's a bit confusing when you get these extra words in there, because you start to over, I think, over-interpret. You start to look for things that actually are not really important in this particular context. So when you hold on to these views, it leads to such and such destiny in the future life. Yeah, these views lead to rebirth. And this is kind of the interesting thing here, is that they're not just unhelpful because they, you get disappointed at the end of the day, it doesn't go where you think, but the whole thing is actually these things are the things that perpetuate samsaric existence, perpetuate going on from life to life. You are grasping onto things. Your mind inclines to certain things. Yeah, you exist in that realm where you are interested in these particular views. And because you exist in that realm, your mind is inclining towards them, craving for them, moving towards them, heading towards something else, propelling and projecting the mind into the future. And this is what is happening here. So every time we crave for something or grasp for something, we're actually projecting the mind into the future because the mind is looking for something in the future. All of these views are about a certain future result, eternal life. Yeah? So if you are looking for, if you think there's going to be eternal life and you want that because your sense of self wants to exist, then you are actually projecting yourself into that future. So this is why these things are so troublesome and why they are so problematic and why views, all of these views are, you know, um, ultimately you need to overcome them. So how do we overcome them? And this is also, I think, very important. One way of not overcoming them is to deny these things and to say, you know, and to, you know, to pretend that we haven't got these views or whatever. That doesn't really work either. Because these views are very deep-seated. They're part of the kind of our psychological makeup. These are come from the sense of self. And we can't, we can't get rid of the sense of self simply by denying our views. So very likely you have some kind of view about the future. And, and you, you may, if I ask you what your view is, you may say, yeah, my view is that Nibbana, the cessation. You may say that, yeah. But deep down, maybe you don't feel that. You know what I mean? It's like viewing things, the theoretical view that we have and the actual emotional view that we have is actually different. 
Yeah, we, f we agree with the Buddha because well, the Buddha said so, so how can we not agree? So the Buddha said, okay, there's extinguishment, ending, everything. Okay, so I agree with that. But really, your actual view, your deep down emotional, what you're holding on to emotionally is actually different. Yeah? Emotionally, you still probably want to exist. Yeah? If I say, are you ready to die? You probably say, no. Yeah? Or is anyone here ready to die? Just, just testing here. Yeah. <laughs> If someone says, you know, can I, I'd like to kill you to help you quicken your path to Nibbana, you probably, <laughs> you probably say, no, thank you, I'll, I'd rather wait till it happens by itself or something. Yeah. And that is the emotional view, that's the real view, yeah? that's the actual, uh, you know, what you're actually experiencing. Yeah? So uh, view here is, uh, one thing is kind of the ideal we are trying to reach, another thing is how we actually feel about the world, and these things are often quite different. Yeah? And this again is also different from the Buddhist idea. We often talk about the, you know, the three, the, the difference between um, uh, sakaya ditti, which is the uh, the view of an existing entity. Uh, yeah, this is the fetter which you get rid of when you become a stream mentor, sakaya ditti. We talk about that view, and then we compare that to what is called asmimana. Asmimana is the conceit I am, uh, and which is much deeper. Asmimana is only given up when you become a arahant, yeah, the, the feeling of I am. Uh, and the, uh, uh, but the other one, Sakayadit, is given up when you become a stream enter. Uh, and that's different again, uh, because then you actually do have the right view. Uh, yeah? You do have the right view. You really know that as ending of things is, is right and good. Uh, uh, but you still have certain feelings and perceptions and thoughts that are counter to that. Uh, but for most people, it's much more superficial than that. Actually, yes, you may agree with the view, but it's not really your view at all. It is actually just a superficial, additional thing that you put on top of your real views, which are, are different. Uh, am I making any sense at all now? Huh? Yeah? Okay. I'm worried that I'm kind of really just babbling away and saying things that <laughs> only I understand. That's the problem. You, you think you're being clear, but sometimes you, maybe you're not. Huh? Please feel free to ask if uh, you don't understand what I'm talking about. So, um, you hold on to these things, and because you hold on to these things, you're projecting yourself into the future. And one of the things I said before is that even if you are looking to be annihilated, you are an annihilationist, that too is a craving about the future, because annihilation is always in the future. It's always something where you want to go. It's a craving that you have. And for that reason, you actually keep on projecting yourself into the future, just like you do if you have an eternalist view. Huh? So you attach to these views, and because of that, you are actually uh, perpetuating exist samsaric existence as a consequence. So, uh, so the realized one, the Buddha, he understands this. Yeah? The Tathagata, this is how the Buddha talks about himself. He understands this, and he understands what goes beyond. What goes beyond is the ending of this uh, individuality, yeah? the ending of the uh, I am delusion and all of that. Uh, and uh, yet, since he does not misapprehend that understanding, uh, he has realized extinguishment within himself. Uh, yeah, so the idea, misapprehend, I, I don't really like that translation. Uh, um, uh, because the Pali word, actually let me check what the Pali word is. Uh, now it's good that I have two computers, so I can check on one or what I'm doing on the other. The other. So always have two computers already. Uh, 
this is how you become greedy. You think you always have to have two computers, and before you know it, you have two, and then you have three. And Mm. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the Pali word is uh, uh, paramasati, yeah. and um, paramasati is a word which just means to grasp and hold on to. In the uh, in the suttas, it doesn't really mean miss grasp or miss hold. Misapprehend means like holding in the wrong way. Yeah. It doesn't really mean that. It just means grasping. Yeah. And the reason why. Uh, but the, the reason why this is often translated as misapprehend is because uh, that seems sometimes to be the problem. The problem may seem, for example, in the sutta, as it talks about uh, uh, grasping silabatta uh, paramasa, and paramasa is the same word when you grasp onto virtue and things, right? And you should, there it says you should not misapprehend sila. Uh, virtues and things, but actually it is the grasping onto virtues which is the problem, uh, and that is what you overcome when you become a stream enter. Everyone else will grasp them to some extent. Uh, and here we have the same, the same problem. Uh, the problem is that um, uh, it's not so much that you misapprehend that understanding, but that you don't grasp it at all. That is kind of the point here. Uh, so he does not grasp that understanding. Uh, yeah? There's no holding on to these views anymore because he has realized extinguishment within himself. When you have realized something, there's no need for holding on to it anymore. Before you realize it, there will be some degree of holding on. Once you have seen it, uh, then you let go. Huh? And um, this is uh, uh, another interesting point in the suttas, because very often you find in some of the um, kind of very inspirational suttas that you find in the Sutta Nipata, for example, in the Atakavaga, which is one of those ancient parts of the Pali Canon, uh, you find suttas where it says that the Buddha has given up all views. So what does that mean, given up all views? Does that mean that the Buddha has no views? And this is a common argument in Buddhist circles, that the Buddha doesn't have any views. But then again, he, he teaches us all these things. He says that there is rebirth. It certainly sounds like he has, has views. And uh, the, the solution to that problem is simply that the Buddha, when he says he doesn't have any views, what it means, he doesn't grasp any views. Uh, yeah, He knows, so he doesn't need to hold on to these things. If he is challenged, uh, he doesn't feel defensive. He doesn't feel that he has to argue back or anything like that. Uh, so this is kind of the power of the Buddha. There's no holding on to these things. There is just understanding. Uh, and this is what we're seeing here. He doesn't hold on to any of this. Uh, he, he understands this. Uh, and... Uh, uh, for that reason, he has realized extinguishment within himself. And here, extinguishment, nibbana, means the real deal. Yeah? This is the nibbana, where there is no greed, hatred, or delusion anymore. There's no holding on to things, holding on. If you hold on to things, by definition, there's some kind of greed or something there, which isn't quite right yet. You're not yet fully extinguished. So the Buddha is pretty cool. Yeah? He, he, you can challenge him, and he doesn't kind of... Uh, he doesn't say anything back. He just, uh, oh yeah, whatever, you know, that's your point of view. Or, or, I'm not sure what he would say. Maybe he wouldn't say that, but uh, something like that. Uh. Uh, 
Having truly understood the origin, ending, the gratification, drawback and escape from feelings, uh, the realized one is freed through non-grasping here. And uh, this is an, I will make this point again, but this is kind of a very interesting point, uh, how he suddenly brings in feelings, uh, right? Uh, so you can see the non-grasping here obviously refers back to what we have just seen. He does not grasp that understanding. Yeah? So he's freed through non-grasping. But the way that that non-grasping happens is by understanding feelings. But we're talking about views here. What is the connection between views and feelings? And of course, and this is kind of what is so interesting about this, is that actually there's a very, very close connection between views and feelings. Because the views that we have are connected with what feels good to us. If you have, if, if, you, if there is some view, the way we choose our views, not because we are you know, supremely rational, the reason, the way we choose our views is because what feels good to us, yeah, what we are used to, what we somehow have been taught, what our parents taught us, what we have learned at the Buddhist society, or double, yeah, I don't know what. Yeah? These, because they feel good, that is where we hold on to things. And this is such an extraordinarily useful insight, because once you understand that your views are largely come about because how you feel about them, you stop taking them so seriously. Yeah, you stop, once you start to realize actually logic and these things actually may only be a small part of it, and actually working in the, working, working for feelings anyway, feeling is the boss, and then logic comes kind of based on those feelings, then you stop taking it so seriously. And this is such a relief, yeah, not to take our views so seriously, yeah, and being able to kind of just go with the, uh, the flow instead. If someone challenges you about rebirth, you can just shrug your shoulders. Okay, whatever, I don't really know, but you know, I, I believe it, but uh, yeah, it's un- uncertain like everything else. Yeah. And that's kind of really nice. Yeah. But feelings are the critical thing. Yeah. You know, when you, because of our sense of self, uh, and someone com- com- uh, uh, comes around with an eternalist uh, idea, it will feel good because yourself will feel it will feel like yourself is satisfied it will exist forever yeah me this you know the real the me i can go on forever after in a happy place endowed uh, uh, with the five chords of sensual pleasures and just enjoy myself forever after hooray that's what it feels like yeah so because it feels like you will be drawn to that automatically yeah? but then the buddha comes along and says something else and you think wait a minute maybe i got this wrong yeah? So then you kind of, uh, because the Buddha is a cool, he has something about him, you listen to that. That feels good at that particular point. Uh, so there is there is some logic there. I'm not saying there's no logic, yeah, but feeling tends to be the underlying thing that drives our views. Uh, and uh, that is kind of very, very fascinating. Yeah. Please, uh, yes. So when you say views, is it a combination of perception and thoughts? When I say views, I mean like um, uh, 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 it's related to perception and thoughts because your views will, de- you know, will kind of uh, decide how you think about things and how you um, perceive things in the world. Uh, but a view is more like, you know, what do you think happens after I die? And you say, yeah, I think after I die, I'm going to last forever, right? That's your view. It's like a thing which underlies the whole thing, yeah. 
or when I die, everything will be annihilated. Uh, so you can see that they're they all related to each other, but the uh, view is often more stable, whereas thoughts and perceptions arise and come, the view will kind of underlie it in a more stable way. Uh, yeah. So view is like an overarching view, and these <laughs> momentary perceptions. And so sometimes I know if I think I like something before, when mm. I experience it, I'll have a confirmation of the good feeling. Mm. But once I change my mind, mm. then it will become negative. So sometimes you can see your perception changing from... Mm. So, so is view much bigger and then it's gradual to change a view? Yeah, so, yeah, so views... I mean, w what we're talking about views here, really, we're talking about... Um, views that have to do with the spiritual life. That's why the, the kind of the focus is on things like eternalism and annihilationism. And these tend to be very sticky views. Uh, when someone has, is committed to kind of God or whatever, then they kind of tend to hold on to that quite strongly. Yeah. And uh, I mean, sometimes people change. They start out believing God, then they kind of change. But these are kind of fairly strong things. Whereas thoughts and perceptions, as you say, can change quite quickly. And then you can get, get an aversion to the thought you had before because you're, suddenly you have turn, turned around. Uh, yeah. So... Yeah. All right. So, um, uh, so you understand all of these things, and because you understand that feelings are unreliable, you understand that all the views that are built on those feelings must also be unreliable. If the feelings are uncertain, feelings change depending on the, uh, you know, whatever conditions are are prevalent. Uh, then, uh, uh, when those feelings change, your views will no longer kind of um, be able to, they will no longer be supported by those feelings. Uh, and because of that, you, you you're going to feel like you your views are kind of silly or they're wrong or, or whatever, and you stop grasping them. Uh, yes, please. Uh. So, with the feelings as such, mm. when you have the emotions attached and the feelings are all combined together, mm. then that's when you grasp and you hold. Yeah. When you let go of that, there becomes a freedom within that, surely. Mm. Yeah, uh, exactly. That's right, yeah. Indeed. <laughs> Yeah, so that's, there's a freedom, of course, yeah, absolutely. So the idea of holding on to things is, uh, is, is a bad idea, and, it, and that freedom also implies the fact that you, don't, you stop holding on to those views and grasping those views, because you understand that those views are uh, conditioned, yeah, and you give them up, and you actually go to a different... Actually, you still have a view after that, uh, but it's a different kind of view. It's, you give up all of those previous views, uh, and you get the Buddhist view, which is the idea of what Nibbana really is like, and cessation, all that kind of thing. So you have a new view, but you have it in a different way than you had before, because you no longer grasp it, uh, and things just tend to flow much more. Uh. But you then still have emotions. Still have emotions, yeah. Yeah. True? But remember, this is not about emotions when we talk about feelings here. Uh. Feelings is kind of the Buddhist idea of feeling, yeah, good, bad, neutral. Uh. So emotions... Emotions, however, can be divided up into that's those categories. Emotions also are good, bad, and neutral. Uh, yeah, you, you have good, bad emotion, good and bad and neutral emotions. Uh, so emotions can be can be broken down into the three kinds of feelings, uh, and then everything can be then expressed in terms of feelings rather than emotions. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, these are the principles, deep, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful, sublime, beyond the scope of logic, subtle, comprehensible to the astute, which the realized one makes known after realizing them with his own insight. And those who genuinely praise the realized one would rightly speak of these things. So this is uh, the Dhamma, the principles, the Dhammas are, are deep, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful, sublime. Yeah, this is kind of what is so, um, one of those beautiful things about when you become wise, is that wisdom always comes with a lot of positive, nice feelings. Yeah, the more profound your insight is, when you see things according to reality, you don't suffer because of that. Truth is always liberating. Truth liberates you. And that liberation is always a very positive experience. So the more profound it is, the more peaceful and sublime it's going to be. Um, dudasa, it can also be called rare to see. I mean, you know, hard. What do we mean by the word hard? Rare is another way of putting it. Because hard, it's not, it's not hard in the sense of, uh, you know, going to school or university. It's just hard in the sense that you have to overcome your defilements. You have to practice the path correctly. Is it hard to be kind? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of almost like the wrong question, right? It's not hard. It's just that you need to train yourself. You need to change the mat your attitude and your mental states. Uh, so it's important to not to kind of make this more, more difficult than it actually is, uh, if you can consistently be kind, consistently live well, well then you are on the right track and you are kind of moving in the right direction. But if you are a person who likes to be immoral and doesn't care about the spiritual path, well then it's going to be really hard because you're heading in the wrong direction. So it really depends on how we look at this. Beyond the scope of logic, atakavachara, yeah, this is kind of nice. It's not that these things are things to be realized, not things that you can logically hammer out, uh, because logic is always limited by the assumptions that you put into it. Uh, got the wrong assumptions? Logic is not going to work out. Uh, subtle, comprehensible to the astute. So you have to be astute. You're going to be astute? <laughs> astute here is like wise, yeah, pandita, etc. This is the... Uh, important point here. So you've got to have to be astute, you have to be careful, you have to be circumspect, uh, you have to do things uh, wisely. Anyway, it's a nice list and some of these lists, all of these lists are really worthwhile reflecting on a little bit because there's lots of information there. But I've talked about this list so many times during this course, I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, so, now we have finished all the 62 views, uh, and now we're going to come to some of the summary paragraphs at the very end. Uh, so, part four of this sutta, the grounds for assertions about self and the cosmos, uh, anxiety and evasiveness. Now, these things are only the feelings of those who do not know and see. Uh, the agitation and evasiveness of those under the sway of craving. Yeah. Yeah, so these 62 views that we have been looking at, uh, yeah, what they are, they are only the feelings of those who do not know and see. Yeah. Again, it's the same idea again we had before, the idea that feeling lies behind all of this. Uh, those who do not know and see obviously are those who haven't got insight into these things, yeah, you haven't seen it properly. 
And because you haven't got that insight, you are driven by your feelings. Your feelings really determine everything, including your views. These views are, are the rooted in the feelings for those who don't, who, who don't know and see here. They are the agitation and evasiveness. Evasiveness says vipandita means like almost like writhing or wriggling, the agitation and wriggling here of those under the sway of craving. Craving is in charge. Craving is the boss. Tanhadasa. You are the slave of craving, quite literally in the suttas. Well, literally, I made us the wrong word, but you are you are the slave of craving here. And because of that craving uh, you think about things, you try to work out the world, you take up views, uh, and all of this searching for views, looking for things, trying to find a way in this samsaric existence which will satisfy you and make you happy. This is the agitation and wriggling and writhing, uh, trying to kind of find satisfaction in the realm which is inherently unsatisfactory. Uh. So under the sway of craving, we are agitated and writhe, trying to find and hold views that are going to make us happy and feel well, something which actually turns out to be impossible. You have to give all of that up and find a, go to a deeper reality instead. So what are these things? Well, namely, when those ascetics and Brahmins assert that the self and the cosmos are eternal on four grounds. We've discussed all of these views before, so I'm not going to... Repeat anything here. Partially eternal, finite, infinite, uh, uh, equivocation of four grounds, uh, uh, cosmos arose by chance, etc., etc. All of these views we have been talking about. I'm just going to go through it. Uh, yeah, so when those ascetics and Brahmins theorize about the past and the future on these 62 grounds, they, these things are only the feelings of those who do not know and see, the agitation and evasiveness of those under the sway of craving here. Conditioned by contact. Now these things are conditioned by contact. Namely, when those ascetics and Brahmins assert the self and the cosmos, etc., etc., all the 62 views again. Here. So it is conditioned by contact. Feelings arise because of contact. Passa is the Pali word. <coughs> Comes from the verb pusati, which literally means to touch something. So touching means basically means being in contact with the world. And the way that we contact the world is through the six senses, right? So we contact the world through the six senses. It basically, these days I like to use the word experience, because experience is really easy to understand. It's conditioned by experience. So I'm not sure if it is the ideal translation. In some contexts it may not work, but in some contexts it actually works really well. So it is conditioned by experience. So as long as there is experience, you will feel the world from that experience. Feeling is a very important aspect of experience, right? So you feel, you experience the world, then you feel. Because you feel, you take up views, you grasp those views, etc., etc. So experience is kind of the root here, the Buddha is saying. Yeah. So experience is problematic, according to the Buddha. 62 views again. Uh, and we come to a new paragraph, not possible. Now when those ascetics and Brahmins theorize about the past and the future on these 62 grounds, uh, it is not possible that they should experience these things without contact. Uh, yeah? Again, making the point that contact is kind of the, uh, or um, experience is the root here, perhaps, the root problem. Uh, 
dependent origination. Now, when those ascetics and Brahmins theorize about the past and the future on these 62 grounds, all of them experience this by repeated contact through the six sense fields. The six senses, yeah? They feel... Their feeling is a condition for craving. Craving is a condition for grasping. Grasping is a condition for continued existence or existence. Existence is a condition for rebirth. Rebirth is a condition for old age, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness and distress to come to be. So uh, dependent origination uh, is uh, what we are seeing here. We're seeing the, uh, the last half of it. Uh, yeah, so you experience the world because you experience the world, you feel uh, a feeling, either you like it or you don't like it, or it's neutral, uh, because of that you crave, uh, so your views, uh, again, you, because you crave for those feelings, to satisfy that craving, you come up with views, uh, this is where the views come in, uh, so to satisfy that craving, you have ideas about how to think about the world, and those views become part of the grasping, arrived derived from craving. Yeah. And dittupadana is one of those graspings, uh, the uh, grasping of views. Uh. And because you are grasping onto something, this becomes something that obsesses your mind. Uh. You think about these things, these views become important to you, you reflect on them. Uh. And that obsession, uh, that, is, that becomes kind of your existence. Uh, yeah? All the things we think about, etc., this is your mental realm, your personal existence. Uh, and so you make kamma according to whatever you think about, whatever you, whatever you hang out in your mind. Uh, and that kamma, that craving, all of these things together, they drive that uh, desire or that pr uh, propelling yourself into the future. Uh, and that's how rebirth then arises. Uh. You notice here how Bhante Siddhartha translates jati as rebirth. And uh, I think this is an interesting point. Some people say, but doesn't jati mean birth? And uh, what is the, what is the um, uh, motivation here for, tr for, for translating as a rebirth rather than birth? How can we justify, can we justify that? If, does it mean birth or does it mean rebirth? Well, the point here, and this, I think this is the very important point of translation that we need to kind of reflect on when we translate these ancient suttas, uh, is that words that were used in those days, uh, whatever their literal meaning is, that's not really what we're trying to arrive at. Uh, what we're trying to arrive at is an understanding of the suttas that was the same as those people at that time would understand the suttas. Uh. So when the Buddha said that birth is a uh, from birth arises from the condition of existence, uh, what, the, what the ancient Indian people would have heard when they heard the word jati is a rebirth. Because for them, when there is birth, there is rebirth. These two are not separate, they are the same thing. Yeah. So for us to be able to uh, create that same meaning in English, we have to actually have to translate with rebirth, because that is what they would have heard. Uh. So that is why it is so important to understand a little bit about that whole culture, the whole background to the suttas, uh, uh, understand uh, some of the other philosophical teachings that existed at that time. Uh, yeah? And as you understand kind of the overall outlook of that culture, as you understand the context in which these words are used, uh, then you can translate much more accurately. Uh, the idea of translating literally is is wrong because there is no such thing as literal translation. What we want to translate is meaning. Meaning is what it's all about uh, because we are trying to transmit meaning to people, not literal words. That's kind of irrelevant. Uh, it's meaning that is important. Uh, and uh, so when you 
This is why translation can be so difficult, uh, because you actually have to have a very broad understanding of what is going on to be able to understand the meaning behind some of these concepts. There's some very interesting advice given by the uh, translators of old, where they say when you translate, uh, first of all, you should never translate a word, uh, maybe translate a sentence, but ideally you translate paragraph by paragraph, because paragraph, that's where the meaning kind of becomes clear. Uh, but actually you need much more than that. Uh, what you really need is you need a full understanding. The broader your understanding is, uh, <coughs> the easier it is to understand any single paragraph or sentence within the Pali Suttas. So uh, this is why translation is such a difficult task and uh, really you need to have been around for a long time. It's fascinating because sometimes I have <coughs> excuse me, watched some of these uh, uh, academics trying to translate the suttas. Uh, and sometimes, even though they are the best linguists in the world, they know how to derive the roots of the words, they know the, all the prefixes, they know all the grammatical endings, uh, they know how to derive it into the various, uh, uh, what are they called, Indo-Aryan Indo kind of sub-languages, and they have this kind of in lots of understanding in terms of linguistics. But when it comes to translation, sometimes they make elementary mistakes. Uh, and that is because of a lack of understanding of the Dhamma, a lack of understanding of the broader <coughs> the culture and the, what these things are actually pointing at. So it's, it's okay to be, have an academic understanding, but it's not enough. You need much more than that. And this is kind of comes out in this sort of situation. So rebirth here is, a, is then a, a good translation. A rebirth is a condition for old age, death, yeah? So you could even say re-old age and re-death, because if it is rebirth, well, that means that there is an old age beyond the current life, yeah? But that becomes a bit strange. You can't really say re-old age, uh, I think, yeah. Re-death, yeah, maybe, yeah, not sure. I don't know. Maybe, I think, I think yeah, those, those words are probably good enough, uh, and they kind of stand the way they are here. Yeah. All right. Any comments on that? Eddie, yeah, okay. Then Brahmali, Yo. this is a very important deep sutta, no? mm -hmm. applies to all of us, okay? I was just thinking, um, would it be, um, it'd be more easier to bring out the five aggregates, uh, the five skandhas, aggregates, that's the making of us, mind or matter? The mind, you know, there's aggregates, there's feeling, this thing, there's our mind, okay? There's a perception, there's a mental formation, it's all down there, you know. So if you see it from the um, bird's eye view down, you know, that could be, how to say, easier to, that for me, okay, um, easier to understand, you see what I mean? From the bird's eye view, these are, to understand this, okay, it's a very deep, deep thing. Mm. Just to see in like that, these things people might not uh, think. No. So if you can see, the five degrees, that's the making of us. Mm. And this is related to the making of us. It's deep, very deep, you know. Mm. Many mm. people can't see it, the thing. No. You understand? You can see it. Maybe I can see it, okay? Mm. For, for a normal person, if you bring the, the five degrees, that's us. That's feeling in us. That's the thoughts, mental formation, in, in, you know, perception, all these things, you know. Yeah. So you understand? You, you see what I mean? You mean that you have to bring it back to no, our, our be, present be, experience? That's what you mean? Yeah. 
These are all very deep things. I can see it. Uh -huh. Okay, good. I'm glad. <laughs> yep. So sorry, maybe I, I, it's a very good sutta, yeah. you know? Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. So this, what I'm trying to say is, if you can relate this to the, the making of us, the five aggregates, the us, you know, there's a feeling in us. You mean your, you mean your thoughts? You mean your personal five khandas or just general no, five khandas? No, that's all of us. All of us. This, all of that, this, all the Even better to relate it to your personal ones. Uh, even more powerful. That's well, when you really get inside. Five regrets yeah. applies yeah. to everybody. Everybody's got feeling. They've got True. The, the, but the, you have the to start somewhere. They have you know, perception. Yeah. They yeah. have the mental forming ideas. All these things. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Start with yourself. That's even better. That's, <laughs> because that's what you can really understand. Maybe you know? uh, that's what you can understand. No, no, yeah. it's hard to. Maybe I talk to you. And it's hard to talk on the phone like that. No. Yeah, but yeah. this is a very deep sutta. Yeah, absolutely. And it's yeah. very, very sure. important to us, us all, you know. Let's carry on, Eddie. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, you're probably right about that, but let's, let's carry on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now we come to the, uh, the last part of the sutta, the end of the round. Uh, when a mendicant truly understands the six fields of contacts, origin, ending, gratification, drawback, and escape, uh, they understand what lies beyond all these things. Uh, yeah, so the six fields of contact, these are the uh, kind of basically the six senses, uh, often called the six senses. Uh, and uh, you, um, so your six senses, we experience things through the six senses. So the six sense experiences might be another translation of this. Uh, so you understand the origin of this, the ending of this, uh, how these things arise, how they come to an end. Uh, yeah, especially, the, most importantly, the rebirth process. Uh, Gratification and drawback, these are kind of standard categories in the suttas. Asada and Adinava basically means that you kind of, you, um, you understand why it is we are attached to these things and why there is a problem. And when you understand that the problem is really, that is where the, that is the thing we need to deal with, then you look for the escape and you find the escape. And once you see that, then you have understood all of this. Just briefly, I've discussed all of these things before, I don't want to repeat myself too much. All of these ascetics and Brahmins who theorize about the past or the future are trapped in the net of these 62 grounds. So wherever they emerge, they are caught and trapped in this very net. Yeah, so all ascetics and Brahmins, basically, who theorize about the past and the future, all philosophers, all religious people, all spiritual people, outside of Buddhism, outside, not, not even outside of Buddha, outside of the Dhamma as taught by the Buddha. Many Buddhists too are probably trapped in this particular view. Yeah, everyone. So every, this is kind of, and why? Well, simply because it all relates to this, this sense of self, which is kind of the problem everywhere, pretty much, where you look. Yeah. So wherever you emerge, emerging here means like, almost like acquiring a view. As soon as you acquire a view, bang, this net catches you. Yeah. You're caught like a fish in the net of views. It's a nice way of thinking about it. And only by going beyond this completely and seeing something more profound can you actually avoid getting caught in this net and go beyond it. Suppose a deft fisherman or his apprentice were to cast a fine mesh net over a small pond. They would think any sizable creatures in this pond will be trapped in the net. Wherever they emerge, they are caught and trapped in this very net. In the same way, all of these ascetics and Brahmins who theorize about the past or the future are trapped in the net of these 62 grounds. So that wherever they emerge, they are caught and trapped in this very net. The realized one's body remains. 
but his conduit to rebirth has been cut off. As long as his body remains, he will be seen by gods and humans. But when his body breaks up after life has ended, gods and humans will see him no more. <coughs> the conduit to rebirth this is craving, right? Craving is the conduit. It's like the thing that leads to rebirth. Neti is the Pali word. So the, uh, there is no conduit anymore. You have cut off the possibility. There's nothing that kind of, uh, there's no um, channel yeah, that drives you on into rebirth in the future. Yeah. So uh, you just hang around in this life. Uh, your body still remains uh, and you can still be seen by gods and humans. Uh, but when the body breaks up, gods and humans will see him no more. Uh, there is no way you can see the Buddha. Uh, the Buddha, even if you have some kind of psychic powers and you can see all the gods and everything in the universe, uh, the Buddha will not be there. It doesn't matter what kind of mind you have made up. It uh, doesn't matter what kind of uh, uh, divine eye vision or... Uh, uh, what's the word I use these days? Anyway, whatever vision you have, there's no way you can actually see that Buddha anymore. Uh, this is a very important statement. Uh, I, because what it means is that uh, you know sometimes you hear stories even in the present day about people who supposedly see the Buddha or they meet the Buddha or they meet Arahants or whatever. Uh, that's impossible. They don't exist anymore. That's the whole point of these things. Uh, yeah, that they cannot. You cannot meet these things. So if someone claims to meet the Buddha and Arahant, uh, well, you know that whatever they did, uh, it wasn't the real thing. Yeah, you can be sure of that. Uh, so maybe it was a nimitta, maybe it was some kind of vision they had, maybe something like that. Uh, but actually the idea that they met a, a Buddha and Arahant, that's actually impossible. Uh, and if you have that view, if you really think that you met the Buddha and an Arahant, it means that you have some kind of eternalist view. Uh, it means basically you have wrong view. Uh, it's a very useful thing to know, because when you start reading and hearing about various uh, teaches the way they express the Dhamma, you start to realize that actually there is a lot of problems with how some Buddhists teach the Dhamma in the world. And it's good to have some ground. This is why I like, really like to focus on the sutta sometimes, because they give you a grounding that is more profound than what you ordinarily see. And this sutta in particular has a lot of these statements that kind of make it very clear how the Buddha differs from almost any other outlook anywhere in the world. When the stalk of a bunch of mangoes is cut, all the mangoes attached to the stalk will follow along. In the same way, the realized one's body remains, but his conduit to rebirth has been cut off. As long as his body remains, he will be seen by gods and humans. But when his body breaks up after life, after life has ended, gods and humans will see him no more. So the stalk uh, of a bunch of mangoes is cut. Yeah, it's like that's been cut from the tree. There is no sap anymore that can make those mangoes grow. Uh, craving is often kind of related to the idea of a sap, something which makes things grow, the moisture or whatever. Uh, all of that has been cut off. Those mangoes will come to be uh, just disappear eventually uh, and there will be no more seeds which will kind of then uh, go planted into the ground and they will sprout the next generation of mangoes a bit like the idea of rebirth uh, all of that is impossible it's been cut off at the root uh, as it says elsewhere in the sutta there's no future anymore for those mangoes uh. 
when he had spoken, Venerable Ananda said to the Buddha, It is incredible, sir, it is amazing. Yeah. What is the name of this exposition of the teaching? Yeah. Well then, Ananda, you may remember this exposition of the teaching as the net of meaning. Yeah. Net of meaning. Okay. I've got to check. I can't remember what the Pali is. Yeah, I've got to check this out. Yeah. Um, Attajala, yeah, Attada, yeah. Attajala means the. That's what it means. The net of meaning. That's pretty much what it means. Uh. So that's. Uh, yeah. So the net of meaning. Quite interesting. The net of the teaching, that's the Dhamma Jala, yeah, the Dhamma Jala, Jala being the net. The prime net, this is the Brahma Jala, right there. Prime in the sense of the highest uh, uh, the highest kind of thing, yeah, the, uh, uh, the highest net or the best net or something like that. Uh, the net of views, uh, Ditti, Ditti Jala, presumably, yes, Ditti Jala. And uh, the last one is the supreme victory in battle. Sangama Vijayo is the last one. Anuttaro Sangama Vijayo is the last one. So there you have, these are the alternative names for this particular sutta. Sometimes the Buddha gives names to suttas in this way. The ending of the teaching comes and the Buddha actually gives a name to the sutta. And you can take it that... When the Buddha gives a name to the sutta, it is something important, right? Uh, remember this. This is the name of this. Uh, this is how you should think about it in the future. Uh, so this it matters. And one of the very interesting things about the Brahmajala Sutta, and I did mention this at the very beginning, I think, uh, but it's a long time since we started this sutta, maybe a year ago or something. Uh, uh, but uh, what is interesting about it is that it is referred to elsewhere in the suttas. Uh, elsewhere it talks about the net of 62 views. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of fascinating. So that means that this was something that was talked about among the ascetics and Brahmins. Uh, and this is one way of ascertaining or, or deciding that this is an important sutta according to the early Buddhist teachings. Uh, the Brahmajala. Buddha gives it a name. It is referred to elsewhere. Yeah? It has all of these kind of things about it which makes it uh, profound and interesting. Yeah? So this is why I have gone through this in quite a bit of detail. Uh, so that is the session 8 Let's just go to the very end of this sutta. Uh, that is what the Buddha said. Satisfied, the mendicants were happy with what the Buddha said. And while this discourse was being spoken, the galaxy shook. <laughs> well, the galaxy was getting a bit worried when this... this uh <laughs> why, why does the galaxy shake? What, what, what does the discourse have to do with the galaxy? Kind of weird. I mean, the galaxy shouldn't kind of galaxy should be pretty relaxed, even though the Buddha gives a discourse. Doesn't really have anything to do with the galaxy. Well, first of all, like, what is what is the word that the Buddha that Bhattasujato uh, translates as galaxy here? It is the uh, ten thousand fold world system. Uh, yeah, the Dasasahasaloka Datu. Uh, das, I think it's the Dasasahasaloka Datu that he translates as uh, galaxy here. So, um, what is it? What is a world system? Dasasahasilokadatu. 
what, what is a world system? And uh, this is uh, fascinating because world systems are actually described in the suttas. Uh, and so a world system is described as kind of the earth, yeah? The, the way they describe the earth is a bit like, okay, like India and the kind of the countries around, yeah, and the four oceans or whatever. Uh, and then the moon and then the sun, yeah? So basically, earth, moon, and sun, basically we're talking about the solar system. That's what it seems like, yeah? So basically, what a world system, Lokadat, is a solar system. Uh, and attached to that solar system, you have all the various levels of beings. You have human beings, you have animals, uh, uh, ghosts, you have all, uh, all of the various um, uh, heavenly realms going all the way up to the Brahma Loka are attached to every solar system seems to have its own kind of... Uh, heavenly realms, right, that belong to that solar system. And that's when people ask, well, where are these gods that we're supposed to see? We can't see them, so how can we believe in what we can't see? Well, actually, they are right here. They are part of the same solar system as us. The reason we can't see them is simply because they, the way they manifest, they manifest with a more refined body, a more refined matter, so that that's why they're not directly visible to the coarse human faculties that we have as human beings. We can see animals, but that's about it. Uh, but they're basically here. They're part of this uh, same system as we are part of. Uh, that's kind of cool, isn't it? Uh, maybe there are devas here today. Uh, maybe they like to hang I don't know if they like to hang out at Dhammaloka. Maybe they do. Probably do. Well, it's a nice place for devas to hang out. Uh. <laughs> and um, so this is one, one world system. Then there's a 10,000-fold world system. Uh, yeah? Maybe that is equivalent to a galaxy. Uh. How many solar systems are there in our galaxy? Well, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows because we, we know that there are a few billion stars, but solar systems is a different matter. Huh? So maybe galaxy is not the, not the wrong translation. Huh? So and as you go out, as you expand the number of world systems, uh, yeah, there are all these heavenly realms that are connected to this particular uh, solar system, uh, but when there are more solar systems, they are like the Brahmas, the higher Brahmas, they kind of rule over many solar systems. Uh, yeah? So when you go up really high up, you have these kind of Maha Brahmas that maybe rule the entire galaxy. Uh, and maybe ruled is the wrong word. I don't think they do anything. They just kind of, uh, you know, they just chill because what Brahmas do, they kind of just uh, have lots of metta and compassion and that sort of thing. Uh, and so I think the idea here, when they say the 10,000-fold world system, this is just my interpretation, is that these Brahmas, they maybe they hear this discourse. And when they hear this discourse, they start to quake and tremble. Yeah, because they realize, actually, wow, if this is true, I have wrong view. I got things wrong. I might die down the track. I am subject to dependent origination. This is one of the things you find in the suttas, that the gods of the heavenly realms, they start to tremble, they start to become fearful, uh, because they understand that actually the entire outlook has been wrong all the time. Uh. They can't remember having been born, so that's kind of scary to them. Uh. So ma imagine it, so this may be what is going on, the Brahma, which is kind of behind the 10,000 world system, uh, that Brahma shakes, uh, and then maybe that causes the whole universe, the whole galaxy to shake and tremble at the same time. Uh. What do you think? Yeah. Am I on thin, thin ice or am I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. Ajahn Brahmali, you know, <laughs> you know the Mahayana text, you know? Yeah. It talks about 3,000, great thousand world systems, you know? Mm. Yeah, you know, okay. So these are all mysteries, you know? Mysteries, okay? So it shakes, it's because the truth, the Buddha found the truth, the thing, you know? 
So it's already like I see it shake the thing, you know. Also, what do you think, Jam Bram, Bramley? You know, this my in Bud in Theravada we have the thirty-one planes of existence. Yeah. The 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 thirty-first one is the Nibbana. So there's thirty left, you know. No, Nibbana is not so, a realm of existence. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. The, the is out, sorry, it's outside. Yeah. Outside, sorry. Outside. It's, or or beyond so, sorry, or whatever. It's not yeah, it, yeah. it's outside the, 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 the thirty ones now. Yeah. So there's three. Is there any connection or you see any connection there with our thirty one planes of you know nearby is outside that, you know. Yeah. Connection 3, between 000, what? Yeah, the world system. You know, I was just thinking, you know, the Mahayana they state that I don't know whether the Sutta state, I don't know. It does. It uh, there is a sutta in the Gutranikas three is eighty one, which talks about the uh, what is it? A billion world system. The bill, no, the thousand followers in the, the thousand to the second power world system. The thousand to the third power world system. Uh, uh -huh. That's like maybe a similar kind of thing here. Yeah. But I think it's just that a, a world system contains all of these realms, right? Mm -hmm. So in, it's uh, it's kind of a uh, yeah. So uh, it, just, it doesn't actually relate to a particular realm. All of these realms are part of this world oh. system. So, yeah. And they also say yeah, but, the, okay, I did. Maybe, maybe give someone else a chance to, oh. to ask because other people are here as well. So give yeah. Thank you. Please, Linda, yeah. When you said Brahma shakes, what does that actually mean? Is it like a being or is it...? Yeah, that would be a being. You know, one of these beings that have been reborn because of their metta or karuna, compassion or whatever, or, or jhana state, uh, be reborn very highly. And then maybe they come out of that jhana for a short while and hear the discourse of the Buddha or something like that. Uh, and then they kind of start to tremble because they realize that actually their, their view is wrong. Yeah. So, so why does that... Um, make all all the systems quake. Well, b because Brahma is like the boss for this whole system. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so the Brahma is kind of behind. Brahma is looking after this whole galaxy. Uh, and when Brahma quakes, well, the whole galaxy will be affected because it's kind of his ba his baby almost. This galaxy, right? Uh, so the whole galaxy kind of uh, is affected. I don't know exactly how it works, uh, but the thing is that the the world is very is much more mental than we normally think of the world. Uh, the, the mind is far more powerful than we think. Yeah. So if Brahma was behind the whole galaxy, if Brahma quakes, well, it, it very likely to have an effect on what we normally think of as material phenomena, because those material phenomena are probably related to the mind in a much deeper way than we normally think of these things. Uh, that's why I say there is a connection there. Maybe it's all a bit speculative, I have to admit, but a bit of speculation is fun, I reckon. So that's why, Thank you. why I'm that's doing true. this. Yeah. Uh, just to set a pretext, uh, it's not a very important question. and It's not that I'm nitpicking the yeah. contradiction, okay. but something curious. Yeah. It's not one of the texts says the world is not eternal, mm. right? Uh, mm. But in some other sutta, the Buddha says um, there is no beginning and there's no end. Mm. So that means, that seems to me that the world or our rebirth is neither beginning mm. or Obviously, referring to samsara. So that yeah. point, sure, good, very contradiction. Good, very, very good question. Please keep nitpicking because it's important to be able to ask these questions. You know, <laughs> so you're very welcome to do That's that. Question yeah. number one. Yeah. So the the answer to that is when the Buddha, when we talk about eternal, we mean like some principle that is always there. Yeah. So eternal in the in this context means that there is one thing that is always the same, never changing. Yeah. Unchanging is what it means. Eternal here. Yeah. So and, and even though you're right that samsara, there's no first beginning, nor is there any conceivable end if you carry on with craving, yeah, it is still a changing thing. It's something which always is in motion, always changing, always moving to something else. Uh, 
But the wrong view is that there is something within that changing world which is always the same, always uh, self-same, without change. That is, the, that is what is wrong. Yeah? That is the meaning of the world is eternal. Yeah? So there's, there's slight, there, there, these are different things, uh, if you know what I mean. Yeah? Okay, so yeah. when, they, when it says the world is eternal, it means to say that the world is stable, it's a wrong view. Right? The, the fact that the world is stable, unchanging, always the self-same is only the superficial external things that are changing, that is the problem. Yeah, that's the wrong view. And that there is an essence in the world, that's also a wrong view. That's yeah, what you that's, mean. The same, that's the same idea. The essence and the internal stability is the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's another question that I'm not nitpicking. But <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so the feelings, mm. right? Uh, I think one lady was saying feelings um, like uh, it's not emotions, but Ajahn says it's more like how we respond to that, uh, mm. pleasant, unpleasant and neutral. Mm. So can I take it to mean that this is like our reaction, like uh, averse reaction, uh, attraction and neutral? No, no, the, 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 um, the aversion and the attraction, that is the result of feeling here. Yeah. Feeling comes first. Feeling is just your, how you experience something here. Yeah. Feeling is the most salient aspect of an experience, the most important aspect of any experience. So when you, um, you know, when you enjoy something, it's a good feeling. When you, when you have, a, when you, uh, it's displeasure, it's a bad feeling. It's just a, your immediate reaction to something, whether you like it or you don't. Uh, then, based on that, you then have aversion or attraction. Huh? Yeah, so aversion or attraction is secondary. Huh? The feeling is, is, is more primary. The pr feeling is the primary driving force in, in life for everyone. Huh? It's kind of the, maybe in many ways the most important of the five khandhas and why so many people uh, make a breakthrough to awakening simply by contemplating feeling here. Okay, so feeling is like uh, in the context of you know, this text, it's like liking and disliking. No, it's not disliking. It's, it's, it, is the, uh, it is that which gives rise to li liking and disliking here. Yeah. Yeah? Is it a sensational Sensation, yeah. Sensation. So if you, know, if you have a drink, it's a nice drink. Yeah. First of all, you feel the feeling. Okay, nice. That is a positive feeling here. Yeah. Then you get attraction. First of all, you have to f without feeling it, you can't ha cannot have attraction. Yeah. First of all, you have to know whether it's nice or not nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then comes the attraction. Yeah. So it's more like sensory feeling. It's a sensory feeling, yeah. Okay. And yeah. Uh, just now there was some like happiness, sadness, envy. So... Those kind of things, what do we call them in Buddhism? Like the range of emotions? Yeah, well, that, that is just, um, th these are just kind of, these are words that are used and very similar to the way they are found in the Pali, actually. So these are, um, where did they go? So here we are. Rebirth, old age, death. This, this is what you mean? Sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress. Well, these are just a shorthand for all the things we experience as human beings. Yeah? When people die, how do you feel when someone close to you die? Yeah? You feel, I don't know how you feel, but many people feel sad. Many people lament, many people cry, many people can't let go at all, they suffer for years afterwards. Many people die after they, you know, like an old couple, one of them dies, the other one dies soon afterwards. Why is that? It's basically because of heartbreak, because they can't deal with it. This is kind of the human realm. And so this is, uh, what human life is like. This is what this really refers to. Huh? It just refers to all of those, all the pain, various kinds of pain we have in human existence. Uh, mm. yeah. 
Okay, one more question. I'm just wondering, um, as a person who is a Christian and understanding about heaven and eternal, yeah. and can also see nihilism, so as a, this is a personal question. So although now I'm Buddhist, I only think about my next rebirth, so I don't think about Nibbana. Yeah. So that extinguishment to me is a bit close to nihilism. <laughs> so it's a bit strange. I'm still grasping mm. the, the concepts. So, so is that what I need to then change, not just think about, I hope my next rebirth is good, that I'll get to see Buddhism again, and so on, or do I need to have, not just understand the Four Noble Truths and the three uh, characteristics, but also wish for myself Nibbana, which is unusual in my mind. It's, it's not don't, something uh, I do yeah. normally. Yeah. Don't, don't wish Nibbana for yourself. That becomes like fake almost. Uh, you, know? you cannot wish something you don't understand. Uh, so what you should do instead is try to understand what Nibbana is. You should try to understand why existence is problematic. You should reflect on the nature of things, and then as you do that, then you will start to grasp why Nibbana actually is a positive thing. But it's hard to... So don't, you know, don't, don't try too hard, and don't try to sort of... The main point of teaching these kind of things, the main point of teaching things like the downside of samsaric existence is to kind of lean you in the right direction, so gradually you kind of get, get to uh, appreciation of these things. But don't, yeah, don't, don't try too hard. Just allow these things to come naturally. Yeah. They will grow with the understanding of what this, uh, this whole area is about. So just try to kind of understand what the message of the Buddha is, uh, but don't try to kind of have a false desire or a false wish for something that you cannot really fully understand. Uh. You said it was hard to understand. So yeah. for a layperson, so it's just coming to class and hearing the Dhamma, practicing a little bit, just gradually refining... Yeah, and and also it happens more naturally as you practice. You know, as you, if you're having success in your practice, you're getting a bit of nice meditation. You're having success in being more just more gentle person, all these kind of things. Uh, you find that so many of these concepts and ideas they actually become more easy to understand because you are also developing at the same time. Uh, so it's not just about intellectual understanding; it's about your personal development, your personal change as you go along, uh, and uh, it's also kind of also getting used to ideas as well. There's many things coming together there, I think, which gradually develops you in the right direction. Yeah. All right. Any more comments, questions, complaints? Yes, Nayana. <laughs> I have a question about um, the last section where it says about the, the four jhanas. Yeah. Um, as I understand, it describes the four jhanas as exactly how Buddha taught. Yeah. And um, so why is it a, uh, becomes a wrong view yeah. when it's actually... Um, in suttas, uh, the four jhanas are sort of equal to uh, the samadhi. Yeah. So it is. Wrong, it is. It is wrong. Yep. 
please. Yeah, like yeah. I understand yeah. that it's not the four jhanas is yeah. not the uh, not nibbana, yeah. but does it say that those people who held that view that the four jhanas are the the nibbana, but at least they were they were having um, some sort of a samaditi? In that way? Um, Yes, I mean, the problem is, the problem there is not the jhana, the problem is the view, uh, the underlying view, that's the problem, uh, because that view means that you misunderstand the jhanas. Uh, yeah? So you take them to be nibbana, you take them to be the final, the highest kind of possible nibbana, and you have some kind of view about them being eternal or whatever, that is the problem. Uh, the jhana is okay, the view is the problem, that's why these things are called mitcha samadhi, it's actually wrong samadhi, uh, because the view is wrong here. Yeah. So uh, the, you know, the, so that that is the that is the issue here. Uh, and uh, did they have right view to some extent? Well, yes, because right view is also gradual. Uh, so they have some degree of right view. They have abandoned already all the sensory pleasures. They understand that sensory pleasures are hollow and empty. That is right view to that extent. Yeah, they have abandoned um, uh, maybe the, the will and many things that we normally see as. Uh, uh, but we attach to in ordinary life, they have given up. So they have a degree of right view, but right view is like strange because yes, you build up right view, you build it up and build it up and build it up, uh, but then there comes a point when you make a complete flip. Uh, yeah? So you kind of go in the right direction, wrong direction, but then there is a point where uh, there is like a, a, um, a complete turn, when you turn over completely here. Yeah? So it's gradual and sudden. We often talk about whether enlightenment is gradual or sudden. It's one of those discussions within Buddhist circles. Is enlightenment gradual? It's both gradual and sudden. Uh, it is gradual and gradual and gradual until you reach a point uh, where your mind is ready, then it's sudden. Uh, and they haven't come to that sudden point. They have only done the gradual part. Uh, and they have done the gradual part all the way to the fourth jhana. They're basically ready for awakening. Uh, all they need to hear is the word of the Buddha. If they hear the word of the Buddha, the sudden Right, we're going to come like that uh, and flip the switch, and everything's going to be turned upside down. Uh. So, what, what you're saying is true. They have a high degree of right view, but they're lacking that last part, which has to do with the sense of I am. Uh. Yeah. Uh, so, you mentioned that it's uh, Micha uh, Samadhi yeah. uh, that they had, yeah. but uh, it was actually the way the, the, the jhanas were described. Uh, it looks like yeah. it is samadhi. Uh, it is. Samadhi. It is samadhi. Yeah. It is mitcha, not because of the samadhi. It's mitcha because okay. the underlying view, which is view behind is. it. So when you come, when while you have the samadhi, it's it's sama samadhi. When you're in the samadhi, it's perfectly right. Uh, when you come out afterwards, uh, you think, yeah, that's me. Yeah, wow, I had the jhana. Yay, me. I'm the best. Uh, whatever, whatever it is that you think. Be yeah. Actually, probably won't think anything that coarse because you're such a refined state, but you take it to be you. Huh? Yeah, and that is the problem. Huh? This is what this is called the. Um, it's called the. Um, uh, er, the underlying tendencies are called the. What are they called again? They are in Pali. Huh? So, Anusya. Yes, the as, asmi man anusya is called asmi man anusya. Asmi, I am mana um, uh, conceit anusya. The underlying tendency to the thought I am. So that that underlying tendency is there when you are in the jhana. So when you come out afterwards, uh, that underlying tendency arises again, and then it kind of you take it to be you. Huh? That is the problem. Huh? But if you have right view, you won't do that. Huh? That's the difference. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Huh? Any last, uh, this is the last chance to 
ask questions about the Brahmajala Sutta. We probably will never do this again in my entire lifetime. So this is <laughs> this eight sessions is enough for the Brahmajala Sutta. Yes, please, Chaitasi. So, yeah. about uh, the stream winner. Mm. Um, stream winner doesn't have Sakaya Ditti, but is it uh, still he has uh, some sort of Ditti or something like that? Uh, it has Samaditi, yeah. Samaditi. Yeah, not, not Mitra Ditti. Yeah. Yeah. So, they have, um, so they have a Ditti, just like the Buddha also has Ditti, you know, the Buddha has views, otherwise he couldn't teach. He teaches from his views about the reality. Yeah. But uh, Srimad still has the sense I am, but it's not, it's not a view, it's more like a feeling, yeah? because it takes a while for that feeling to kind of work itself out of the mind. Uh. So this, is what the, this is the difference between Asmimana, uh, the, the conceit I am, and Sakayaditi. Sakayaditi is if you ask a Srimad, is there a self? They say, no, of course there is no self, it's all empty. But they may still feel that sometimes uh, because of the habit of the mind, the habit of perception, uh, etc. And this is what you find in the uh, Kemaka Sutta, in the, uh, the uh, Kanda Sangyutta, number 89, I think it is, uh, something like that, and that's, that's where the distinction is made, uh, yeah. So that is just a habit? Just a and habit it, of the it, mind, yeah. It goes away once he's practicing more and more. Yes, there is a nice simile in that Sutta, the Kemaka Sutta, the simile is of uh, if you have a cl- some clothes that you have recently washed, uh, in those days, they washed the clothes in cow dung. That was kind of the standard way, because cow dung has certain antiseptic properties. Uh, so you wash it in cow dung, <laughs> which is kind of strange from a modern point of view. But, uh, and then, of course, it has a bit of smell afterwards, uh, right? Because of the cow dung smell. Uh, so then, uh, that, uh, then the Buddha says, well, th- what do you do? It has been washed already, but it has the cow dung smell. You take that cloth, uh, you put it in a box, in a casket, which has scent inside. Uh, you leave it in there, and after a while, that cow dung smell will go out and we'll just have the beautiful scent of the scent in the thing. Yeah. So the cow dung smell is like the asmimana, the I am. Uh, everything that has to do with I am is always bad. It's cow dung, it's excrement and these kind of things. It's kind of the way it is. Uh, but eventually that, this, that smell disappears uh, and then uh, it's gone. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, everyone? Uh, everyone okay? Good. Uh, um, so uh, isn't anything from online, the online master? Nothing online. Okay, good. So that's great. So that means we can pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and we can call it a day.